Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by fellow chef Charity Gibson, president of Green Banana Social and recent addition to the next sales team. In today's podcast, we get the chance to speak with one of the smartest, if not one of the most eclectic and unassuming characters in the promotional products industry, Jeff Batson. Jeff is the kind of guy you should know, and here's why. Jeff has been the president of Next Products in Shelbyville, Indiana, since 2013. On his watch, Next was named one of ASI's fastest-growing suppliers in 2015. Next, with its on-site corporate parent, is a manufacturer of injection molded drinkware and promotional print products. Next is a pioneer with polyurethane dome decorated products and recently added full color digital technology accessories. Among other trade roles, Jeff has been a promotional product manufacturer, decorator, and business owner since 1999. Jeff was also a U.S. Navy submarine officer for six years. Jeff graduated from Vanderbilt University and has a master's degree in operations from RPI. Jeff and his wife, Anne, are recent empty nesters, but still have tuition bills and enjoy hockey, comedy clubs, and the symphony. Jeff, it's a great pleasure to have you on the program today. It's great to be with you, Mark. Thanks. Hi, Charity. Hey, what's up? Hey, Charity. All right, let's jump right into it, Jeff. I know that you're a big Made in the USA advocate and fan can you tell us why this matters to you? I guess probably the most obvious is we're making things in Indiana. But even before that, I was a Made in USA advocate. And I think it initially grew out of some patriotic, you know, emotional desire to see America working. But that was just an opinion. And the more I got into it with the Made in USA movement, you know, you learn things like how the velocity of money recycles in the community. And certainly most of our customers are doing business, you can say locally or regionally, or define your geographic area of interest. And when the money can recycle in the sphere that you're doing business, then the economy picks up and we've got better customers and we are adding value more frequently. Right. It's cycling of the currency. Jeff, just jumping in there, I'm curious, noting everything you've just said about Made in the USA in terms of being good for the economy, and I completely agree with you, how do you leverage that in your marketing? Well, there's features of our products because they're made by us in Indiana that become benefits for our customers and likewise their customers. An easy one is the safety of the product. It's public knowledge how we're regulated. We do a lot of drinkware, so that's FDA regulated. We have larger companies that have done social audits, but I think you know common sense is you know our employees are of age, work in a safe environment, and paid fairly according to the laws and regulations of the United States, at a minimum. So a lot of the recent industry topics 
you could almost say, if you want to get a little cynical, you could say, well, I don't even know if that discussion applies when you're talking about the USA manufacturer. Certainly there are bad manufacturers out there, but not too many. I don't know who they are. Another one is environment. You know, there's a lot less transportation of the goods, and the more you wholly make your product, the less environmental impact there is. None of these are absolutes, but they'll certainly apply. And then you could throw out the whole notion, like if I tell you, Mark, you should buy USA-made products, I mean, the first thing you might point out is like, well, I'm Canadian, so you know, why am I concerned about that? So the product, I don't know if you'd go and get a product just because it was made in the USA, but your product also has to have a personal business compelling reason to get it. So you might avoid a product knowing that the manufacturer pollutes the local river and, you know, it's got 10-year-olds working 18 hour days and it's 120 degrees. So that might be compelling enough to not buy a certain product. But I think in most cases, that is not the overriding reason why you go get something. You know, USA-made product, but it's got to be a good product and satisfies the needs of the customer and likewise the customer's client. Right. Okay. Jeff, switching gears just for a moment here, I know that you have had some thoughts about potential conflict of interest between PPAI and the recent SAGE partnership. Is that something that you'd be comfortable elaborating on? Uh, sure, sure, yeah. I like PPAI. We're a member. We subscribe to SAGE. So we, and I, I say the corporate we, like both of those organizations, you know, in the case of PPAI, we're involved in the regional association, involved with B, and so they're both great. The conflict I see is when you have a not-for-profit organization aligning with a for-profit organization, that there is inherently some conflict of interest. And that I am uncomfortable with. So, for example, I also like ASI. They're a for-profit organization. But I don't know if I want them representing the industry to lawmakers. So that's where I see, I don't know, if you're not, for PPAI, you're not clean anymore. But as I understand it, the merger has been great for PPAI. They got a lot more members. I presume it's also great for SAGE. They're going to have more subscribers, and that's terrific for them. I'm certainly happy if both organizations are growing because of their merger, but you can't ignore that one is supposed to be the not-for-profit representative of the industry. That was my point where I see the conflict between the merger. I think it's interesting, too, obviously coming at it from previously being a distributor, I wonder how many suppliers share Jeff's view and like what the disparity is between the number of suppliers and distributors that hold you know different opinions on the subject because I think in total for distributors it's pretty much a win-win but I guess I've heard you know now being on the supplier side too there's challenges and there's quite a bit of disparity and I don't know that maybe seeing that come full circle if it would change opinions on either side or like where you know where that line is drawn between the two. Yeah, and certainly smarter minds than mine got together in a group and talked about it and came up with good reasons to do it. So, you know, there certainly wasn't any flippant decisions. So it's probably information that I don't know. But as a, a member and subscriber of both, at least on the surface, my first reaction was, wow, what happened? Yeah. My guess is after this podcast, somebody's going to call me. Charity, to echo your point, 
I think that the partnership has made a lot of sense for distributors that are looking for an affordable search product. And I think Sage, to their credit, has done a good job there and has added value. I think, Jeff, what I'm curious to ask you a little bit more about is if we feel that it's a win-win on the distributor side, why would it potentially not be a win-win on the supplier side as it pertains to the Sage PPA ideal? Well, it's like electing a politician who's funding their campaign with a special interest group. Right. Now you're going to question the background of every decision they make. So in the case of PPAI, they are aligned with a for-profit group pretty strongly, and therefore, you, depending on what the question might be, say, well, was their decision to act in a certain way based on that relationship? It's just, you know, growing up in the industry, you always look at ASI offering certain services, and they make money while they do that. And PPAI, you know, I view it a, a, a lot differently and like them both. Right. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. I think so, for sure. And, you know, ultimately, I think that our job here at Promo Kitchen is to have these discussions and not everyone's going to like what they see in, within the industry, but we want to be able to have that fair discussion where people can talk about the good, bad, and the ugly. So that's certainly a fair opinion. Yeah, and I think that topic's somewhere, you know, neither good nor bad. It's just somewhere in between. If you're going to be the industry advocate, I would hope that your, your only consideration is the good of the suppliers and the distributors, the people in the organization. Right. Okay. And in this case, it, it, at least it infers that there's some other factor. Okay. Turning our attention away from PPAI into regional associations, Jeff, what is your opinion about the role of the regional association in 2016? Well, full disclosure, I'm, I'm on the TISDA board, and I think the regional association should act like you want PPAI. In other words, they provide services to the distributors and the suppliers to facilitate the trade. So, in my opinion, I think a big component of that should be industry education, and you know that's the biggest thing. But then you have like realities too, Mark. I mean, they you know someone has to run that organization, although it's you know it's pretty much all volunteers, and therefore we they're going to probably have a money making device such as a trade show. CISPA has at least two per year. And then you ask yourself, well, is having trade show, is that the main benefit of the group? And I, and I have to say, if it is, then disband your, your regional association because there's a lot of trade shows going on. So maybe you're providing one that's local and people don't have to travel. But if that's the main purpose of the organization, I, I don't think that's a very good one. But I think, you know, providing industry data and education so that suppliers can be better suppliers and distributors can be better distributors and be a little bit more nimble because we're talking about a smaller geographic area or a smaller population of members. But if I'm a distributor or a supplier, it's a no-brainer to join your regional association. It doesn't cost much and you will easily get back from it. Right. So, yeah. I mean, to, to summarize, if the regional associations, if the, the main thing they do is provide a show, I don't think that's very good reason to have a regional association. What do you think, Charity? I agree with that statement. I think that obviously the purpose of the regional association is to act, you know, in part 
as a smaller counterpart of the larger association on a whole. So, you know, obviously the show is part of it, but education, obviously being part of Promocation, that's one of my main goals is, is providing education and that support system for people that, you know, regionally can't travel long distances or that are just getting into, and that's, I think, what I would like to see. Some of these regional associations really have a unique opportunity to reach future talent in the industry at a local level and to, you know, bring them in and educate and kind of feed them into the industry at large. And I don't necessarily know if that's happening enough. And also, I think that there's a discrepancy between the strengths of the different regional. So I think that filters into it a lot. I don't know, you know, all I know is my regional association, I think they have done well at improving over the last couple of years and have really become a stronger force in the Southwest region. And they, so they're providing a lot more benefit than they were even, I mean, three or four years ago where there was, you know, sometimes it's questionable why these exist and you're paying EDs and you're fundraising basically through the show and then there's not much that comes after it. But, but I think the regional associations that do it right, you're exactly correct, Jeff, are, you know, looking to actually build out the region as, you know, part of the little family tree basically that is the, you know, larger industry associations on a whole. So, totally agree. My comment sort of inferred like, oh, this is what some regional associations are doing. That's not necessarily the case. Lots of regional associations, I know that, you know, PPI, you know, helps them to provide, you know, value services to their members. And I know we talk about it in our meetings, you know, how are we going to, you know, get together? What are we going to say? It's not all about the show. You know, it's probably like ASI and PPI when they put on their major shows. It's a very nice model. You have some exhibiting, but there's a lot going on like the day before and even during and at night, uh, things like that. So if you could take like a miniature version of that, put it in your regional, and now maybe the topics are more local. I think that's terrific. You know, I hope so. That's why I volunteer for it. Everyone should join one. To add to that, one of the things that I think is maybe lacking is getting and soliciting feedback. I would love to see because I know some of the regional events are maybe not as well attended as they maybe could be. And it would be interesting to see rather than kind of throwing something to the wall and seeing if it sticks. I think any organization, it would behoove any organization, whether it's a regional association or a business or anything, to just solicit the feedback from the constituents. What do you actually need? And then figure out how you can provide that. So that's just, you know, something that I see that I think regionals are doing a fantastic job, but I could see, you know, as a place for improvement, maybe to go more towards the end user and solicit more instead of assuming we know what these people want and trying to give them that. Right. Let's talk buying groups, Jeff. I know that you've had some concerns about how they've been structured and the impact they have on the industry, particularly with some of the smaller suppliers. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, and it's difficult to have a discussion about them or the discussion I'm about to have without coming across like you're whining. So I'll just say that we are members of some buying groups and then we're not members of others. That's just our personal situation. What I see in the buying groups is, one, they must be providing value to their members or they would not exist. And I see that they provide some economies of scale and the benefits that come from that when people get together and do things together. But I think that they help the distributor members more than the large group of suppliers. Right. And I get concerned, and in fact, I get less and less concerned for next, but concerned for a new supplier who is not going to be able to do trade in certain circles 
because that circle has decided that they're going to do trade with this group of supplier vendors. And restraining trade, to me, is inherently not good. So there's certainly benefits for both suppliers and distributor members of buying groups, but I don't know if that overall value to the industry is greater than the negative value of other people who get boxed out. And I wish that suppliers could participate in whatever groups they want to fit into. But it's frustrating when we have, you know, we have seen where we have good customers and then they align with a buying group of which we're not a member and now they're not a good customer anymore. Right. And if you're a startup supplier, imagine you've got a cool product, but you're not advanced technically, you know, and therefore, for whatever reason, you don't have access to a huge group of potential clients. You know, you're going to be very frustrated. What happens is if you're a supplier, or next might be even a better example, you know, a manufacturer of a product. It turns out that this product not only makes a great promotional product, but it can cross into other industries. Well, if I'm trying to sell into this industry and it's a nuisance, or you're just saying, well, we're not going to buy it from you because of this reason, you're going to go look for other markets. And if you go look for other markets, now you're redefining your business. Right. I think you raised some good points and noting that some people might hear your comments as sour grapes if you're not in, you know, a particular buying group. But let's let's put that aside. I think what I take from what you're saying is as interesting, but it may challenge what you're saying as at the same time, is that I just think that the laws of the market ultimately prevail in this particular situation. So let's say you have a buying group, and this may be a very black and white example, but let's say you have a buying group that says, we are only aligning ourselves with these top 50 suppliers, and they will get 100% of our business because we have struck a rebate deal with them, and we will not consider anyone else outside the realm of these 50 suppliers. My view on that is eventually that buying group will suffer because there won't be any new innovation that will be coming in. We think about the suppliers that are part of that group will get cozy. The distributors will get cozy. They won't look at any new products or things that are outside the four walls of their buying group. And eventually they will get overtaken by the up and coming creative distributor that has got sources from what I would define the long tail of this industry. Now, in fairness to that buying group that I just mentioned, I don't really think that even the worst buying group out there, I don't think that they would do that because I think most of them do have their eye on some upstarts and they do have some accommodation for that. So I think that that's what prevents those buying groups from becoming too close-minded. And I think if I'm a new supplier who's coming into this industry and I'm not known and I try to knock on Premier Group and or the PeerNet Group or the Partnering Group or any of these great buying groups that are out there that have been around for a long time, I probably wouldn't waste my time with those groups, to be perfectly honest, because I know that I would likely get the door closed and I'd have the rule book thrown at me. I'd say forget it to those groups. I'd go out to the other distributors that are maybe a little bit smaller, more nimbler, the ones that are open to new ideas and new vendor relationships and go and establish a great market there. And the way I see it is if I put a distributor hat on, if you're a new distributor, do you go knock on the door of Citibank 
Well, probably not because they're going right. to, Citibank is a buying group unto itself and they'll throw the rule book at you and they'll say, sorry, you need to be an approved vendor, blah, 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 blah. And they'll throw all this bureaucracy at you and it's not worth your time, but it's worth your time to go down the chain and to deal with end users that are more receptive to your offer. And then that's how you grow, or at least that's how you grow as a distributor. Don't waste your time with those bigger companies until you're bigger and until you have the scale to work with them. So I think that would be my defense in the spirit of a friendly debate with you, Jeff. Well, for my point of view, too, I think, again, talking about the supplier responsibility, but let's talk about the distributor, other responsibility that distributors have. Even distributor members of certain buyer groups like you can obviously get rebates and you know there are different incentives and opportunities for using particular suppliers that are obviously giving you the highest incentives or you know whatever your buying group prefers but we're in this industry to be creative to think outside of the box to break the rules and going into especially this new economy that we're kind of bumping up against I think that it's an important concept to note that the distributors, even distributor members of these buying groups, need to take responsibility to seek out innovation and to seek out suppliers like Next and you know some of these other companies that are pioneering new imprint methods or new products or you know whatever. That as distributors, we're not getting complacent and realize that we are the constituents of these buying groups too, and we have the power of influence to you know bring some of these small to mid-sized suppliers back into the limelight and give them some of their power back too. So I wouldn't put it all, especially knowing what I know now with my very short foray into the supplier side of things, you know, the burden of responsibility doesn't always have to fall on the supplier. Like we need as distributors to be advocates for these, you know, new and upcoming suppliers as well. Like that's my argument is that it is very difficult and I see how much there's kind of some shut out and things like that, but I think we also need to remember that distributors we have a voice, we need to use that to influence as often as we can. Right. And we're just talking about like one aspect of the buying group. I can think of like lots right. of other ones, like financial access, technology, so you can be technically relevant to distributors can be technically relevant to their end users. They combine things in economies of scale that helps them and facilitates trade that way. My point is it's not even really about next, like you know, like I said, we're in some groups, not in others. But from an academic perspective, you have a supply curve and a demand curve, and the participants of the demand curve, those people that make up the demand curve, are affecting the shape and position of the supply curve, then that's no good. I mean, that's the same as saying taxes are efficient. Well, they're a little bit efficient because we got to build trucks and roads, but generally they're restraining trade to some extent. Likewise, if you say, Let's say the buying group was only suppliers from North Carolina. And, well, that's not fair to all the people in, like, South Carolina. It's probably got some good suppliers. I can think of some. Um, it's the same way. You've created an inefficiency, but you also have created efficiencies. My point is, if you're a small supplier, you're affected by the inefficiencies. Right. And if you're a small distributor, looks to me like you could greatly benefit from lots of these groups or choose not to. Right. So it really wasn't a discussion of like sour grapes or next. Next has got more sweet grapes than sour grapes. <laughs> it's more of, I'm thinking back to my macroeconomic class and, you know, I started learning about monopolies and, you know, where's the good of a monopoly? Where's the bad of a monopoly? And there's both. Huh? Right. So that's really my point in discussion of buying groups. Right. And then there's certainly one I'd like to be a member of and they don't you know, they don't want us. 
that stinks, and I want to tell them they're wrong, you know, but there's lots of business out there for everybody, and like you said, you find your competitive niche. Where do you fit in the market today, and do you want to be in a different place in the market later? That's up to how you want to grow your company. Right. Jeff, I think we've got time for one more question, and then I always like to turn it over to give our guests the last word, but just a heads up on that. One thing that I think is interesting in 2016, and this is something that you have specifically mentioned in the past, is that the margin gap between distributors and suppliers is currently unsustainable. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and why you believe that's the case? Yeah, I mean, eventually it kind of goes back to the discussion we're just having of like market forces are going to, you know, drive the outcome. And I think most industry observers know that a distributor margin is more than a supplier margin. So you start combining that with other market forces or other industry forces, and there will be suppliers that say, well, maybe I should be a distributor too. It's the difference that says, do I do that or not? I was thinking about, because we had talked about this before, Mark, look at like the automobile makers. I mean, they're all serious manufacturers, but they don't own all the dealerships. Right. They've decided that we're not going to do that. Now, what they do is indirect marketing or direct marketing on behalf of their dealers. So they chose to go that route. But then I look at some of like the fast food chains, and they got a combination of stores, restaurants they own, and others they franchise and don't own, but they control. And they're chasing that margin gap between owning it or not owning it. And I can see the same thing happening here. Like a distributor who can become skilled in import and decorating, well, they should go do that because that's most efficient for them. And for most suppliers, it'd be completely inefficient to try to sell to end users. But the margin gap between the supplier and the distributor, it's that money that's there, and if all of a sudden they got efficient, then I think it could happen. And I think you can see that with some e-commerce. If that's a method of selling promotional products, and maybe all of a sudden I want to have next.com. I mean, that isn't our strategy, but certainly for some suppliers, they're going to say, well, I'm going to go chase that money. Right. And the other thing is a big market force that I see now with suppliers is, you know, you can go to PPAA and look at their industry sales data. And, you know, the third quarter last year, uh, suppliers' business was down. And it was the same quarter where distributors had record growth. So we're observing some dynamic, a new dynamic. It's not a good one for suppliers. Mm. So they're going to have to take some action. I don't know if it's become more profitable, sell better to these distributors, or decide, like, well, i gotta, I, I got to do something else with my products, and so I'm going to go do it. Right. And so I think that's out there. There will be some industry shift. But, you know, markets and our trade, you know, constantly changing. And... Uh, so I just think that margin gap will be a force that drives some change. Right. I see that. I know we've talked a little bit about, too, in just our discussions about what might be driving that. And I think you've touched on it a little bit throughout this entire conversation. It's just that need for innovation in the industry. And when you see suppliers' numbers going down and distributor number going up, it makes you wonder, well, where is that disparity and what happens with that? Like, why is that gap? Why does it exist? And I'm guessing it's probably going to grow. 
I mean, you look at companies like Oreg Audio, for example, and they have this amazing product. Well, it wasn't even in the industry until, you know, after it has been available in the retail space for so long. And we're not an industry that's nimble enough to be driven by retail trends. And so I can see as this new group of buyers comes in, me personally, I feel like many people are going outside of the industry because of, well, sometimes it's bureaucratic reasons, and sometimes it's just the lack of innovation. So for me, I think it's, it's interesting to follow that trend, and I think it's necessary for us as an industry to pay attention to that and really dig into that and to shift maybe our values as an industry according to that. And as distributors, one, I will say distributors listening to this podcast, it is real. The margin gap that these people are mentioning, <laughs> I've believed in and I've been a big supplier advocate for years now and now being on the side. Distributors, you are lucky ducks. So count your blessings every single freaking day. <laughs> I love it and it's fun and this is a really fun challenge for me. It's exciting but it's different. It's a very different world on the supplier side and I think distributors need to thank your suppliers every single day for the hoops that they jump through, for the rebates that they give you, for the you know, everything that they do that they don't charge you for and when they do charge you, you know, realize they're not, you know, it's not a cash cow kind of a, a mentality either. It's There's a, a definite give and we really truly need to build those partnerships again and really have trust in the supply chain. But I, And I think, you know, there's some, some symptoms that are showing up of a bigger problem and I think that's, it's on our plates as distributors and suppliers and service providers to work together to strengthen those those relationships back up. Right. That's the only way we're going to be able to succeed. I mean, moving forward, it's, it's just interesting to see and to think about what the future might be, especially given those numbers and so many people getting out. And then, you know, new distributors coming, new suppliers as well, but new distributors coming into the industry, you know, are they going to continue to come into the industry when is it even necessary for them to be here? So I think that's something to look at too. And it, it all plays into what Jeff was talking about on a macro level. Are we doing a good job of finding that information, analyzing it, and then taking action right. proactively to you know, work towards a brighter future. Right. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.